So last week we started a short series. It's titled Lines because lines are important. They help you get to your destination. They determine in or out. Lines are really, really important. And we are in a movement in our culture. Seeds were planted centuries ago, but they're producing fruit right now that says any line is wrong. So we're moving away from and getting rid of these ancient paths that have helped civilizations, people thrive forever. And so that's this series. And we jumped in last week to the deep end culturally. Wouldn't have been the deep end years ago, but it is now, men and women and in the church. Today, we're gonna take part two of that. It's men and women in the home. And to help maybe understand it, it's like this. Have you ever tried your best at something only to make it worse? Right? Marriages sometimes are that way. You try your best and you only make it worse. So it's almost like when my kids were young and they were learning to tie their shoelaces and then they'd want to untie them and they couldn't quite untie them, what would they do? Pull really hard, right? Just, ah, and what happened to that knot? It made it worse. Sometimes my kids made their shoelaces so bad, you just have to cut it. There's, you can't get it out, so you end up cutting it. What did they need to do? Stop. Relax. Take a good look at it and work on it that way. But instead, it's just, ah, trying to get the untangle out. I think men and women are a lot like shoelaces. We are in sometimes these circumstances and, and we don't stop, we don't relax, we don't think about it clearly. We just, ah, and then things get really bad. But most of us, our core desire in marriage is for peace and cooperation, complimenting each other, kindness, to fit together, right? All those things. That's what we want. That's our core. How we carry that out sometimes, not in the shoelace. Just a minimum amount of people don't want that. They want anger and anxiety and fight and misery. And we have a name for those kind of people. They're psychopaths, really. I mean, that's what they are. But they're the minority. But it's hard to tell the difference, though, when we don't have tools, because both of us are just pulling the knot and trying to get... So we jumped in last week, and I know that I opened a can of worms, and that's fine. I'm fine with that. I'm going to open a bigger can of worms today. And I'm fine with that as well. This is what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. It's just in the last generation that we've decided, yeah, we don't like that anymore, we're erasing it. Well, okay then. My thing is, if you're coming to church, I come to church not to have my lines erased. I come to church to have my lines defined by God. That's what I'm here for. So I'm, okay, let's define these things. And I'm doing a fast 30,000 foot flyover of this subject. Giant books have been written on it. I can't cover every detail. That's not my hope. My hope maybe is to intrigue you enough because this weekend we're having a marriage conference. It's called Love and Respect. And get signed up. It's a lot more time to go through this stuff slower with your spouse to work through these things Friday evening and Saturday morning and you'll be out in time to go watch the football games or do whatever you wanna do, right? So th that's my hope, get signed up for this. And love and respect is just a tool. Can tools be misused? 
100%, right? They get misused all the time. Do things get hurt when tools are misused? Yes, right? Tools get misused. Every time a man goes and rents heavy equipment, there's misuse that's gonna happen, right? That's why you're renting the equipment. <laughs> that doesn't mean the equipment's wrong. This means I don't know how to use that tool very well. And then what gets seen on the internet? Is it the millions of times that tools are used well and excavation is done right? No, it's the fail when the tool rolls into the whatever, the, sea, the, the ocean. That's what we watch. So when you Google love and respect, guess what's gonna come up? Men that have used that tool to hurt their wives. And I've said this last week, I'll say it again. What I'm gonna talk about today only works for believers. This is not, hey, this is tools that any marriage can be helped with. No, this is a tool that will only help you if your heart has been changed by Jesus Christ. If it has not been changed by Jesus Christ, you will use this to beat your wife. That's what you'll use it to do, okay? So it's just flat out, this is for Christian men and women, period, hard period. It only works if your heart has been changed from a stony heart that is selfish and wants you only to a heart that's been turned into a flesh and is moldable and movable by the Spirit of God, okay? So get signed up. And last week, here's what I said. And it's real simple. Men and women are different. I know that is crazy talk today. Like you, you've lost your mind, Matt. No, that's the way it's been for a long time. We're not just pegs that you can just move around and we're not interchangeable. And I don't need some kind of scientific study to show me this. Like God ordained that I have three daughters, love them. And then I had two sons, right? My three daughters, I would come home. They would compliment me. Dad, you look so good today. Dad, thank you for working so hard. Daddy, how was your day at work, right? I'd come home to my son, Elijah, when he was born and man, he would kick me and grunt, dad, right? That was it. And then somehow, man, born into him was this desire to get bad people. Like, I can't understand it. It was born into him. It was always, I'm gonna get the bad guys. And it was everything that he had. He'd eat a piece of toast and he would turn that into a, a gun, right? I'm not a gun guy. Pizza, gone. Stick, gone. Legos, gone, like gone. I'm not packing. My wife doesn't pack. I drive a Volkswagen bus. There is no gun rack in it. Like, I'm not pro anti I just, I'm, I'm not a gun guy. If you are a gun guy, good for you. It's not my thing, right? So I'm like, what in the world? Where did this come from? I can remember he's like four years old and he's telling me how he's gonna get the bad guys. So I said, buddy, what are you going to do to the bad guys? You are four years old. You're three foot two, 50 pounds. What are you gonna do to the bad guys? He goes, dad, I'm gonna shoot him with a shotgun. <laughs> and they looked at me, he goes, can I borrow a shotgun? I said, buddy, I don't have a shotgun. These are the only guns I got. <laughs> to which he said, ah, oh, we're doomed. <laughs> Get a shotgun, dad. <laughs> right? We are different emotionally, physiologically, physically we're different. I just read this statistic. Like this was just mind blowing to me. There are 300 American high school boys 300 boys that are faster than the world champion woman 100 meter dash runner. 300, we're not talking about college, we're not talking about the world, we're talking about 300 high school boys are faster than the world's fastest woman. So you can argue all you want against, oh, we're interchangeable. No, we're not. God made us differently. Emotionally, we're different. 
I don't cry at weddings. My wife does. Partly I don't cry at weddings because often I'm doing them and that'd be weird. Just start sobbing. These two are never going to make it. Oh Lord. <laughs> Ruins the reception right then. So. Okay, so I'm just, we're different. The way that men interact with men and women interact with women, it's different. Do you know that? So I've been reading this guy. He's a PhD from Princeton. He's kind of a sociologist guy. His name is Rob Henderson. And he put this up and I thought this was so fascinating. He says this, like men and women, how we treat each other. So men bond by insulting one another, but not really meaning it. Agree, men? Okay. Women bond by complimenting each other. Okay. How good is that? So this is how this works out. Women, you look so cute. Ladies don't mean it. Men, you're an idiot. Men don't mean it. How true is that? Here's what they're finding about young men, especially when we insult each other. It's actually a barometer of that relationship. That if the relationship is strong and good, you can call your buddy an idiot and he could care less. But if there is some kind of problem in that relationship, if you call him an idiot, he's like, what? Shut up, dude, and gets all mad. And it's a way for a young man to be, oh, there's something that's happened in our relationship. I gotta figure out what that is now. How crazy is that, right? Like that's underneath the surface. So we have barometering your relationship. Women, and I'm just the messenger here. Don't shoot me, okay? Women tend to compete on looks. That's what you tend to do. I'm just telling you what sociologists have found. And it happens from the time you're young all the way through life. So when you compliment somebody, but you don't mean it, there's something that you're doing right there. Like, I hope she leaves that dress on because it doesn't really look that good. I'll look better than her. Okay? I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot me. Okay? So we both have these like broken, fractured parts of us, right? That we all have these things. And we're different than each other, okay? So I take all that, and then my point is simple. You get married. It's the world's first reality show, right? You take uh, two different species, right? They're just, they deal with each other differently, they talk differently, they interpret things differently. Two different species from two diverse backgrounds. One of them gets hopped up on hormones every 30 days, the other one is always hopped up on hormones. You put them in a house together and you lock the key. What do you think is going to happen besides that? There'll be drama, right? There'll be drama because we're like, don't know how to deal with each other well. So the Bible gives us some guidelines that are to help us navigate those things well and flourish. And today they're unpopular and I get that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show us an Old Testament story of a really, really broken relationship. And we're gonna just work through it. And then we're gonna go to the big thing, the number one thing that gets the Bible in trouble in today's culture in 2022. And we're gonna talk about that. And then my hope is for you to see that God's guideline there is for our flourishing and our blessing. That God actually knew what he was doing when he said, hey, this is how it's supposed to work. All right, so let's go. Old Testament story. 
Second Samuel chapter six, I taught this a couple months ago as we went through Second Samuel. It is brilliant. And what it shows is this. Wives have this good desire. And their good desire is to help their husbands be all that God has created them to be. But that good desire, like any tool, can be used in a bad way and it can hurt and destroy. And that's what happens in this time. And David responds the way most men respond. And David's a good dude. He's a hero of the Old Testament. He's got problems, no doubt, but he's not the worst guy. And it's just telling us how men respond. So here's the setup. David has one bucket list. I want the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's kavod literally was at. I want it in my city, Jerusalem. He had tried and failed and somebody died last time he tried it. He's trying number two. This time it works. It comes and he does it the right kind of way. With God's guidelines, it's good. And as he's going in, he gets so excited, he starts to dance. Remember early on when Edgewater was started, this seemed like a bigger deal back then. But young people would ask me this. They'd say, are Christians allowed to dance? And I'd always respond, some can, some can't. I'm a frog in a blender. You'll love it. Right? So David dances, obviously totally okay in the Bible. So he dances and he starts to get hot. So guess what he does? He peels off layers as he dances into the city of Jerusalem. By the time he gets into Jerusalem, he's in his tidy whities And Michael, his wife, notices that. Wives notice things like that. You're in your underwear and you should not be in your underwear, right? And so Michael's like, oh, she wants to help her husband not do those things again. That's the setup to the story. Second Samuel chapter six, beginning in verse 22. And David returned to bless his household. I just love that statement. He is clueless. He might still be standing there in his underwear. He is absolutely clueless about what stands on the other side of that door. He's just like, best day ever. Brought the ark in, celebrated how awesome was today. And he's just going home happy like a lamb to the slaughter. (laughs) But Michael, the daughter of Saul, her dad was the king before David. It's pointing all this out in the story. Every word matters here. Her dad was the old king, came near to meet David. I bet she did. I can't wait to TiVo that moment in eternity. I mean, she comes and she, he may not understand it. He doesn't know what he did wrong. She does. And she is going to tell him exactly what he did wrong. And she could not do it worse. Okay, because listen to what she says. And she said, how the king of Israel, not my husband, not David, right? How the king of Israel in your position, who you are, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Modern translation, David, you're trailer trash. That's what she said, modern translation. 
vulgar, shameless. Are you kidding me? You are trailer trash. Now, understand, she has a grievance here. David should not have been dancing in his underwear. She's got a grievance here. But is that how you address it? The moment your husband comes home, you are meeting him at the door and just like, you're trailer trash. Now watch how David responds. Because David is typical, I think, of most men. I know men, I deal with men. I talk with them, I counsel them. David's a typical man. His response is a typical response from a man. Look what he does. And David said to Michael, it was before Yahweh who chose me above your father. Woo! (laughs) And above all his house, all your brothers, your entire family, right? To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of Yahweh, and I will celebrate before Yahweh. He brings up the past right here. This is history. Her dad was the old king. God had kicked him out and put David in his place. And David is saying right here, listen, I'm better than your dad. I'm better than your whole house. I was chosen above your entire family. What's in all that right there? Bunch of history, right? There's history. There had been conversations that had happened between David and Saul, I mean, between David and Michael. Whereas my dad didn't do it that way. My dad ruled like this. My dad did it, right? All that is there. And David now, because of years of that, is bitter at it and he just explodes right now. This is the point where he explodes. I'm tired of that. I'm not your dad. I'll never be your dad. In fact, God chose me above your dad. Right? That's all right in here. That happens all the time. That when we have these drama cycles and we refuse to deal with them, what happens is each spouse, husband and wife, gets, we get this like line of debits that your husband or your wife have done to you. And then when things get tough, what do you do? You grab all those debits and just hurl them at her or hurl them at him, right? It's the worst thing you can ever do. You want to not solve problems, do that right there. Remember all the debits, remember all the problems, remember all the issues, and dredge up all that mud and throw it at him or throw it at her every time there's a problem. And this is what David is doing. And this is what men do all the time. Okay? Then verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. How good is that? What did David just say right there? You ain't seen nothing yet, woman. You think it was bad with me in underwear. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? I'm gonna be way worse. I'm gonna do things that make me feel dirty, okay? How about that? This is the exact opposite of what Michael wants for her husband, is it not? She's dealing with a real issue here. Kings should not be dancing in their underwear. Dealing with the right issue. But she deals with it so wrongly, what happens is it pushes David to be even worse. You ain't seen nothing yet. I think this is so typical. David's like, oh yeah? You think that's bad? Oh, you just wait. Now, I don't know how he can get much worse. He was in his undies, right? Like how, okay. You gonna be naked next time? What are you talking about? But it's pushing David 
to be even worse of a king, worse of a husband than he already is. And this is the way men are. When we are disrespected, met at the door and just attacked the moment we walk home, when we think we're coming to bless our home, you can expect men to react just like this. And then it gets even worse. But by the female servants, by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Michael, you disrespected me. And I'm going to go find respect somewhere else. David says, I'm going to go find it in another woman. I've seen time and time again when a man has been disrespected in his home, that then he just curls up, checks out, and he goes and finds respect somewhere else. Maybe in a hobby, maybe in the bar room, maybe with another woman, maybe in a dog. I don't, I don't know, something. He's going to go, I'll find respect somewhere because I need it. My soul feeds on that. So you have disrespected me, I'll go find it somewhere else. How bad is that? And this ends by this. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Why? The knot got tight and David cut it. No more intimacy. That's why she has no kids. Now, just in case you're confused, this is a really bad marriage. This is as bad as it gets. The Old Testament is written with good and bad. Bad stuff you can push off of, good stuff you can cling to. This is one of those that you say, this is bad. She had the right desires, right? I want to help my husband not do that anymore. It's not kingly. It's not the right thing for a king to do, but she does it in such a horrible way that what ends up is David's like, I'll be worse than that. On top of that, you and I are done. Our relationship now is done. It brought out the worst in both of them. And if you've been married for more than one month in here, my guess is you've had a second Samuel six moment. And then you've sat down five minutes later, five hours later, and you're like, how did we get here? This was not my intention. This is what, Michael didn't want this, right? I bet David walking up there was like, you know what? Maybe I should have reconsidered the whole underwear thing. But when his wife does what she does, oh, I'll be even worse then. Because it pushes him in the wrong direction. Because this is what men do. So how do we possibly correct this kind of stuff? I think there is a way. And like I said, I'm going to fly over this fast. But it's one of those lines that in the Bible gets accused of misogyny and chauvinism and sexism. It is the number one. The Bible has been changed to oppress women. Well, my hope is to show you what this guideline is and then to say, here's why God put it in. To protect us from this right here. Here's why these verses are there, is to protect us, okay? So are you ready? Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. Ladies, you're gonna love this. You'll underline it and highlight it and circle it. My hope is you actually will. Verse 22. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, you like that verse? Probably not. Is submission hard? Yeah, that's why it's called submission, (laughs) right? It's hard when your husband puts his foot down and it makes no sense to you. You've got nothing to wear and there are a brand new pair of shoes that are 50% off at Anthropology. $99, that is a great deal. And your husband says no. And he goes and buys whatever he wants. He wastes money on all kinds of things and I can't buy a pair of shoes. How unfair is this? I'm buying them anyway. I've heard that can happen in a marriage. (laughs) Right? Genesis 3 told us in marriage, there's going to be a power struggle. That's what it warned us. The garden of delight that was supposed to be so good and so complimentary now becomes UFC, the octagon. And there's a power struggle. So what does submission mean? Is it slavery? Is it silence? Is it you have to do whatever your husband says? Yes, it is. Let's pray. (laughs) Let's just go through it. Does submission mean a wife could never confront her husband, a la Michael? Yeah, wives should be Should be, absolutely. You were designed as a helper. Why does Adam need a helper? Because he needs a helper, right? He needs help. So part of it is, yes, but you have to do it right. You have to understand how to actually walk out confrontation in such a way that leads to what you want, to press your husband in to the fullness of what Jesus has for him. Because here's the thing about husbands, we can put our heads down and pull and we'll pull in the wrong direction. And we won't look up till 20 years has gone by. And wives are so good at being like, hold on a second, why are we doing this? Why are we working so hard? Why are we taking this on? Wives are so good at that. But how you do it is so important. If you call your husband trailer trash when he gets home, not gonna help. Call him a lazy hypocrite, not gonna help. That won't get you the godly husband that you want. So how you walk out confrontation is super important. How often you do it is super important. If you're doing it all the time, it's impossible. It's white noise then. But yeah, you're supposed to confront. Does it mean you can't disagree? No, please disagree. Your husband's not Jesus. He will make mistakes. He will sin. He'll make poor decisions. He won't pray to God for wisdom. He'll jump on things rashly, 100%. That's why we need two. And you need to be strong and secure in who you are so that you're able to help him, able to lead him, to cause him to seek Jesus and seek that wisdom that only comes from above. So yes, you're supposed to disagree. Does it mean you have to do everything he says? Notice what the verse says. Submit to your own husband as to the Lord. See, over both of us in a marriage is Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. So if a husband asks a wife to do something that is sinful, the wife says, "Uh uh-uh, our higher authority is Jesus. I'm not doing that. That's not Christ-like. So notice it. Here's the essence of submission. It's serving your husband for his sanctification. 
That's what it is. Looking and praying about what is best for him. Does that mean he gets to walk all over me? Is that best for your husband? Is it best for any image bearer to walk all over another image bearer? Never. No, that's not what's best for him, right? This is sanctification. So you're desiring your husband's best and you're praying about how to do that submissively, okay? But here's the thing. The Bible gives few details on submission. Why? It's as if God is saying to you, wives, see me for details. Your husband's unique. Your situation's unique. There's no like blanket thing to help this. You need to seek me and pray to me about how to properly move your husband to have a deep passion for Jesus and to be leading in the way that he's supposed to lead. See me for details. And if he's a believer, that's really easy. You pray for him. You speak words of life into him. You remind him every morning of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. You have been given everything for life and godliness today, husband. Go and live big. Dream for us. Lead us. It's easy. If he's not a believer, 1 Peter 3 says, you win him with your conduct. You live a life that's so brilliant and so abundant and so fruitful that your husband wants the same thing. I can count on my four or five times I've had men come to Edgewater in the last 17 years and they've said this, I want what my wife has. I'm not a believer, but she is amazing. And I want what she has. That's the most incredible witness ever because it's easy to fake it one hour on a Sunday. Oh, God bless you, praise the Lord. That's 168 hours a week. And the testimony is so good. I want what my wife has and I don't have it. Brilliant. You win them with your conduct. That's submission. God, I'm praying for the best for my husband as a leader in my home. But it gets even better. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Headship. How do you like that one? Headship, here's what it is for a man. It's authority with responsibility. Here's the brokenness in men. We want authority without any responsibility. We want the authority to go buy a 75-inch big screen TV and a PS5, but we don't want the responsibility to pay the rent, right? So that's a brokenness in men. But headship is both of those things. And when you go through the Bible, here's what you see. When there is a problem in a marriage, guess who God always speaks to? Even if it's the wife, Adam and Eve, the wife ate, right? Eve ate. Who does God come and confront? Adam. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's talking to God. God says, hey, I know you're 100 years old, but you and your wife are going to have a kid. Sarah's listening outside, and she laughs. Who does God confront? Abraham, why did your wife laugh at me? And Abraham's like, I don't know. Come on, you made her. I have no idea. I've been married to her for 100 years. I still can't figure her out. Give me a break, God, right? Doesn't matter. God's like, hey, 
you're the head. It's responsibility with authority. Moses and Zipporah, right? Zipporah doesn't want to do something that God has told Moses to do. Moses doesn't do it because of her and God pins Moses to the ground. Every time there's a problem, God deals with the man because that's what headship is, right? And our example of headship, it tells us right here, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and and is himself its savior. Our example is guess who? Jesus Christ. That's our example. Not some YouTube guy that's really popular right now talking about headship or talking about how women are supposed to be. Our example is Jesus. That we keep reading the gospels and we see how Jesus treats people and we say, that's how I'm supposed to treat my wife. That's headship right there. And Jesus had a mission statement. And I've made up my mission statement for my marriage. It's Matthew 20, 28. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's my mission statement. I didn't get married to charity for her to serve me. I got married to charity to serve her and to give my life for my wife and my kids. And so I preach that message to myself when I drive home. After I've worked a long day here, I preach it and I call it my second shift. Matt, right now, you're going home not to be served, not to get a massage and watch TV and eat ice cream. I'm starting my second shift, the most important shift ever. I'm going home to serve my wife and my kids, to fix broken things, because that's what I do a lot of when you have a bunch of kids, just fix stuff. And that's what I signed up for. And that's what I'm here to do. And I preach that message to myself because that's what Jesus did for me. He didn't come to be served. He served and gave his life as a ransom for any. That my job is to make my wife and my kids have a joyful, green pasture, still water existence as long as they're in my house. And I preach that. And then there's a ton you could do as you study the life of Jesus. I'll give you one more big one. Jesus initiated Jesus didn't wait for me to figure things out and repent and come to him, did he? He initiated to make peace between me and God, Romans 5.1. Husbands, listen to me very carefully. You are to be the headship that initiates reconciliation with your wife. And that rarely happens with men. Most men will sit there cross-armed, sulking day after day, waiting for their wife to slink back to them and say they're sorry. This passiveness that's in men now. And it's ungodly. And here's why it's so damaging. When you are mad at your spouse, when you're mad at your wife and you go to sleep with that madness, guess what the Bible says happens? It says, do not let the sun set on your wrath. Don't give a place to the devil. When you and I as husbands passively crossed arms, angry at our spouse, going to bed night after night in that anger. That anger is an acid that ends up creating a hole in your heart that Satan just brings all of his garbage into you. And I wonder why there's so much porn and so much unfaithfulness and so much addiction happening in marriages because men sit there passively letting anger eat at them, waiting for their wife's soul to sulk back to them, slink back to them and apologize. That's not what Jesus did for you. Do you know that? 
Jesus is the peacemaker. You and I as husbands are supposed to fight that tendency and we say, I'm not letting the sun set on my wrath. I will initiate peace in my home. And so you've had a big fight and you are on your California king and you're as far apart as you can get on that bed. Like the only thing holding you on is that comforter that's wrapped around both of you. You'd be gone if you could. It means in that moment you say, I will not let the acid of wrath settle into my soul tonight and change me into something. But Matt, it was 99.99% her fault. doesn't matter. You reach over and you tap her on the shoulder and you say, I am so sorry for my 0.01% fault. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't use numbers. <laughs> do not do that. Jesus did not do that. And it was hundred percent our fault. If you reach over and you say, Honey, this is not the life I dream of us. This is not why I work hard for us. There's better in me and I want that to come out. You do whatever you need to do to apologize and to initiate reconciliation with your spouse. I shouldn't have responded that way. Whatever, however you do it, honestly saying, I know I can do better, help me, you initiate. And then you don't say, well, since I said, I'm sorry, do you have anything to say? You know, I just thought, because I was, you got nothing? Well, I'm not sorry either, right? No, it's not how you do it. You are a peacemaker, leading, initiating. That's how it's supposed to work. That's headship, biblical headship. So here's how it works out, just in my life. So my wife and I, married now 22 years, and we have had to make some big decisions that affected our family. So I had a great job working as an engineer, you know, future planned out, financially secure, all that kind of stuff. And there was an opportunity to do ministry. And I didn't put my foot down and say, woman, submit. We prayed and we talked and we discussed and we prayed and we talked and we discussed. And we in agreement said, this is what God has for us. And that's great. But there are times that we've had to make big decisions in life where we didn't agree on them. What do you do there? Well, here's what happened very early in my marriage to my wife, and it was amazing. Because the problem that I had, and probably still have at some point, is I, my dad was never in the home. Like he just did, he was, he was six months in our house, and that was it. And then, so what happens to young men that were raised only by their mom, it's this problem. I don't have something bad to push off of or something good to cling to. It's just jello, right? So you don't even have, you don't have anything. And so early in the marriage, I just had nothing. I had no standard to either say, that was really good or that was really bad or that worked well. I had nothing. And so the, I'm processing that with my wife who didn't have quite that same thing. Her dad and mom were together until she was 14. So she had a different history. So we're there. And I said on this decision, I said this to her and I thought I was being the right thing. I said, well, if you don't want me to do this, I won't do it. This is what my wife said to me. Don't you do that to me. You be the man, you make the call, and you live with the repercussions. And I was like, okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, all right. Now, why did she do that to me? Because she's smart. Because here's what men will do. We will push off decisions like that on our wife. And we'll make her make the call. So that down the road in six months, when things don't work out the way that we want them to work out, guess what we have? 
someone to blame. Blame is the brokenness in so many men. I knew we shouldn't have done this. I knew I should have done this. I told you I wanted to do that. We didn't do that. That's why we're in the mess today. No, we're in the mess today because you didn't take your responsibility of headship seriously and you shook that onto your wife so you could have somebody to blame. See, headship, it might seem like this negative bad thing. This is your heavenly father saying, this is how men work. And I'm actually protecting you, woman, from the brokenness in men from Genesis 3. And my wife has been so good and so kind in the way that she has pressed me into biblical manhood. She's done it wisely and kindly. I am a very different person because of the way that she has done that. And when it's done right, it's beautiful. And it's brilliant. And it's right. And it's good. And if it wasn't for my wife... I'd be like my great, 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 great granddad, Adam. When he was confronted in his sin, what did he do? Oh, Lord, I'm such a blow-it case. I'm so sorry. I didn't lead my family well. Is that what Adam did? No, what did he do? It was the woman you gave me. Like blames two people and four Hebrew words. It's the most brilliant statement ever. Like, ha, gotcha. You made her. She's defective. I'll be over here gardening. Right? <laughs> because that's the brokenness in men. And God is trying to heal that. And that's the guideline. So women, it's simple. Submission is serving for your husband's sanctification, praying and seeking the Lord and saying, I want the best for him. I want him to dream big. I don't want him to put his head down and forget about what actually matters because men will do that. So help me have the kind of wisdom to, to lift him. You know, wisdom in the Bible is always personified as a woman. I don't think that's a mistake that wisdom to elevate him. And then men, we've got headship, which is authority with responsibility. And the way that we lead is just like Jesus. I did not get married to be served. I got married to serve and to give my life for my wife and my kids. And I preach to myself as I drive home from work, I'm entering the second shift right now. And this is just a flyover, I get it. It's quick, weekend, this weekend, if you can, sign up. If you don't have the funds, we will figure it out to help you with that tool. But I'll say for both of us, for both of us, men and women, we need to Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. You want vision for your marriage? You want strength in your marriage? You want no weariness in your marriage? Wait on the Lord. Pray and seek his face. How do I do this well? I think if Michael had done that, David gets home, knocks on the door to bless his household. She just said, hey, welcome home. Great, all right. You know what? Can I go to the temple real quick for an hour? I, I got something that's on my heart. Can I go pray? I think her marriage would have been so radically different if she'd done Isaiah 40, 31. It would be brilliant. And so as we come to the table today, we're gonna to do a little bit different today. If you're married in here, I want you guys to take communion together. Real simple. Maybe you need to confess sins to one another. I don't know. If you say, I don't know how to do that, real simple, this is what Jesus said. He said, take eat. This is my body, broken for you. That through Jesus' brokenness, men and women can be healed and made whole. 
and you eat of his wholeness. And they took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sin. Jesus, I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the wife I want to be. We've made mistakes. And so we pray today as we drink of this cup that you would cleanse us from those things. It's just that simple. You take it together and allow God to do something in you. If you're sitting in here single, or maybe you're divorced in here, maybe you feel like you've made mistakes and this message is condemning to you. You're like, I've seen, I've done that. Well, the Bible says this, his mercies are brand new tomorrow morning. The Bible says great is his faithfulness. It's we cast ourselves every single Sunday upon the perfect one saying, help us, heal us, change us. Don't let me be anchored by all my past mistakes. Cut that anchor today. Let me know that I'm forgiven and you drink and eat of wholeness and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, okay? So go ahead, take communion. I'll come back up in about three minutes and pray over us and we're done. Father, I thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. Thank you that old things are passed away and all things have become new. I pray for marriages in here that we would cut the anchor with our past. we would truly forgive and forget like you do mistakes, sins and we'd move forward into green pastures and still waters I pray for singles in here I pray Lord that they would find their sufficiency in you if their hope is to be married, I pray that even today you would be preparing in them the ability 
to be gospel-centered, grace-filled husbands and wives for their future spouses. I pray that the marriages of Edgewater would be so rich and beautiful and fruitful that it would be preaching the gospel to friends and relatives and neighbors and co-workers about your way that we would be gardens of delight beautiful refreshing fruitful and so fill us empower us even this moment by your spirit to be those kind of people and send us out on mission to our community. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll finish with one final song. After that song, if you need prayer, there'll be people right up here that'd love to pray for you. Today's your day where you want to be baptized. Roger, right over there, would love to explain to you what baptism means, and then we'll join with you in the story that Jesus is writing. Would you stand for this final song?